If you would bow with me in prayer before we open God's word together. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this place that you provided. We thank you for your eternal life-giving word. We thank you that it is uh, it is uh, eternal, that it continues to create and recreate, that we can come to you and, and see you clearly in your word and hear from you. And so we pray this morning that we would do just that. As we open your word, that your spirit would move in this place, that you would enlighten us, that you would show us, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to see the very truth of your word and how that more fully points us to you. Uh, We lift up little Ashlyn to you right now as she goes into surgery, that you would just be over that time, that you would bring complete healing to her body, be with her family. We just pray that you'd be over them in all this, that they could rest, that they could rest in you knowing that you are in control of all. And so we just lift her up to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, It's no surprise, if you follow the news at all this week, that there's yet uh, another tragedy. Uh, A young man goes and kills a couple people uh, at a news station, if you saw this story. And and I saw that this week, and I I read that, and I looked at it. And and the sad part is you see those kind of things today, and it doesn't even really phase you. A lot of times you just go, yeah, that doesn't really surprise me. Uh, but as the story came out and kind of unfolded, the little bits and pieces I heard is, is in a lot of ways the guy was upset that he wasn't getting the recognition that he thought he deserved. Uh, that people would recognize him more and see him more and, and, and uh, give him more jobs and all these things. And so it led to a downward spiral to, that ended in the taking uh, of other people's lives. And you read that and I thought about it. As I saw that headline, I thought, what would have kept that from happening? And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this idea of assurance in Hebrews chapter 6. And I couldn't help but as I had thought about that all week and seeing those headlines and looking at that story, that if that young man had had the assurance that we talk about, if he really had an assurance of who he was and what that means and what that looks like before God and before other people, that I don't think this would have ever happened. The sad truth is oftentimes we have all kinds of relational issues. We have all kinds of problems uh, amongst us, one another, all kinds of different things in our job, all sorts of different things because we don't have the assurance that we crave. And maybe you haven't thought of it like that before, but I want you just to think for just a second what assurance means. If you look up the definition, you you think on it, what it says is this, that, that assurance means full confidence. Freedom from doubt or certainty. Full confidence, freedom for doubt or certainty. And think about it. Here's a guy who killed other people because he didn't think he was getting the recognition he deserved. He didn't have a full confidence. He didn't have an certainty in who he was and what he was doing and all those things. And the truth is, all of us struggle with this. This is an extreme case where someone took a life over it. But we all struggle with this all the time. In all different ways. And when we hear that full confidence, freedom from doubt, a certainty, who does not want that? In everything. In all our life and in all our things, in our relationships, right? You want that in your relationship with your spouse or or your closest loved ones. You want a full certainty of their love and how you stand and what that looks like. We all want that. Uh, We want that with our children, We want that for our children. We want that with our friendships, our relationships. We want that like this young man this week in your job. You want an assurance in your job. You want to 
be uh, doing a good job and being recognized for it and having a confidence in what you do. And so we all want this, every single one of us. And so I want you to think for just a moment, what keeps us from having that? Whether relationally or professionally or socially or whatever it would be, what keeps us from having that? Because if we're honest, we all struggle with it in different ways. Maybe you struggled with it this morning as you got up and got dressed, right? Your confidence and your certainty in your appearance. Or, or maybe as your alarm clock went off this morning, you thought, I'd really like to sleep in and skip worship this morning. You ever had that feeling? It's okay to say you do. That's all right. And people like nervously like, can I say that? Well, part of that is to go, well, I got to get up and get there because what would other people think if I don't, Right. We don't have an assurance in our relationship with other people. And, oh, they might think bad of me or they might think this. And so we all struggle with this in all different ways. And so this morning I want to look at how Hebrews chapter 6 addresses this. And I'll be real honest to you, and maybe you caught this as I read it just a second ago, the verses we're going to look at. In a lot of ways this is a real tough chapter. There's some difficult things said. And I think we can miss what it's saying here if we're not grounded in Scripture. We often talk about the importance, or I say this frequently, the importance of context as we're reading the Bible. It's not just verses that we pull out and and take just on their face, just by one by one. But they all go together. This is a letter written to a specific people with a specific purpose that's, that's fleshing out some big ideas. And so we need to be very careful in how we look at this this morning. But this is the way I want us to look at it as we do. Two simple questions. First, what is keeping us from this assurance that we so greatly crave? And there's a couple things that he's going to point to here in Hebrews chapter 6 that I think helps shed some light on that in a great way. But then secondly, how do we move into a fullness of assurance and really rest in the assurance that's available in Christ? And so that's just the two things we're going to look at. And so let's jump right in with this. What's keeping us from this assurance? And so I'm just going to tell you the first way I think, and we'll flesh this out as we look at the text together, is when we are trying to earn that assurance by what we do. Oftentimes that's the case in job, relationships, all different things. We're up and down. Our assurance is often shaken because it's dependent on my performance. And that can be difficult. Our performance can often be up and down. And so I want us just to think about that picture, but I want to root it and ground it in what we've been going through and what we've been looking at in Hebrews and how this holds together, how all of this uh, comes together. And so what we've been doing is walking straight through the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us each week, you'll know last week we were in the uh, end of chapter four. And then you get here this week and we're in the beginning of chapter six. Wait a second. What about five? Well, we actually covered five a few weeks ago. We looked ahead at the beginning of five as we talked about Jesus as our great and perfect high priest. And then we looked at the end of chapter five that talks about uh, growing into maturity, being skilled in the word of righteousness. The author here is saying that a lot of you have not grown into maturity as he writes to the early church. He says you should have moved further along, but you're not there. He says and then he defines maturity as being skilled in the word of righteousness. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, what we said is that's really what we often talk about in our church. The language we use is being fluent in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I apply the gospel in every way to my life and all the different areas? 
that that's what maturity begins to look like. We see how Jesus touches down in every area of our life through what he's done and who he is and the relationship that he gives us with God. And so maturity looks like that, and that's what it tells us. And so we get that picture in chapter 5. And before we start into chapter 6, before we start to look at those things, you need to be rooted and grounded in the context that's here. He's just said, if you look at the end of chapter 5, that for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So he's defining maturity negatively there. If you're unskilled in the word of righteousness, you're like a child and you're not mature. So that would cease, you make the connection, being skilled in it means you've moved to maturity. And so that's the context here. And then he says in chapter 6, therefore, right? So we've, we've talked about this as you're reading through the book. If the therefore is there, you need to look back and see what it's there for, right? It, it summarizes something that came before. And so maturity is being skilled in the gospel, understanding how Jesus touches every area. Therefore, this is what he says in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Let us leave elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And you can read that. And he talks about moving on to maturity and leaving some of those things behind. And let's not go back to those. And you can read that list and you can go, those all sound like pretty good things. Do they not? Right? You read that and you think, why is he telling us to move on from those things? And I think the picture that's here, I think what he's saying in those first couple verses of chapter 6, is he's looking at those things from a Jewish understanding apart from Christ. Right? There's an immaturity in the church that's not understanding how everything finds its fulfillment in Jesus, which is what he's doing all the way through the book. Right? We talked a couple weeks ago about how people in their situation, hard times, difficult things, have a temptation to turn back to Moses. Moses is the greatest man that ever lived in a Jewish context. He spoke with God face to face. He did all these things. And then the, the author says in chapter 3, but Moses is just a servant in the house of God. Jesus is the son. You look to Jesus and not Moses. Moses just was looking ahead to Jesus. And so I want to root us in the context that we can miss very easily today. The problem here is we've talked about this throughout Hebrews, but part of the issue was the temple was still functioning at this time, we're fairly certain. And so that means there were still people going up to the temple and making sacrifices and doing all the ritual things that go with it. And when hard times come... A Jewish Christian that's trying to work out their faith and what this looks like. Should I be going up to the temple? Should I be turning back to Moses? And the author goes, no, no, no. You look to Jesus. All of those things were just shadows pointing to the fullness that we now have in Christ. But you can root that in the context here of what's happening and see why they would have that struggle. It makes perfect sense that they would be thinking maybe we should go back to these things. And so I think the context of what he's talking about here is a Jewish understanding of this list. Right. So he says, let's move on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. So what's he talking about? You can have repentance from your bad works. I'm not going to do this anymore. And if it's not finding its fulfillment in Jesus, that's a waste of time. 
If I'm going to do this so that God accepts me, I'm going to do some things that's mis- you're not being skilled in the word of righteousness, which he's just told us that's what maturity looks like. Yes, it's good to turn from your dead works. If there's things God has told you not to do and you go, I'm not going to do those anymore and I'm going to turn from those, that's a good thing. There will be benefits to doing so, but you cannot earn your standing before God that way. And I think he's telling you, don't do that if it's not finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Or as he goes on and he tells us right after that, uh, faith towards God. We say, well, of course we want faith towards God. It's not a bad thing. Why would he be saying, let's move on? I think, again, if that's not finding its fulfillment in Jesus, it's just a general faith in God. But it's not seeing how God has given us the perfect and full and complete understanding of who he is in Christ. Then you're missing it. Go back to what he said at the very beginning of Hebrews. It's hard sometimes when we're working our way through a book. This was like six or eight weeks ago. We were in Hebrews one. But if you're reading this letter or you're hearing it read, this is like three or four minutes after that. Right. When we're reading straight through what he says at the very beginning is God spoke to us in all these ways and all these prophets and all these signs. And now he's spoken to us in the fullness, which is his son, who is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. So faith towards God apart from Jesus, don't go back to that. And so he starts to lay out this list. He talks about instructions on washing, laying on of hands. I think both of those things are pointing to uh, worship in the temple. Instructions about washing, you had to wash a certain way and do all these things. It was the ceremonial law that they had in the Old Testament. When we get to Jesus, he's now fulfilled all that. We don't need that anymore. He's done away with that. And so he's saying, don't go back to that. I think the laying on of hands is talking about when we talked about sacrifices, putting your hands on the animal that's going to be sacrificed in your place. I deserve to die, but God is allowing this animal to take my place. You don't need animal sacrifice anymore because we now have Christ. And he's saying, so don't go back to that. And so I think he's just starting to lay that groundwork when he talks about resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment and a Jewish understanding that was just seeing it in shadows, but not the fullness in Jesus. So do you follow what he's saying? I think he's pointing us to those things that this is what maturity looks like. Now, here's the question. You can say, well, that's great. The early church needed to hear that. They were struggling with, should I go back to the temple? I don't think anyone woke up this morning with that struggle. Did anybody go, man, I had a rough week. I really feel like I need to go to the temple and make animal sacrifice today. Probably not. I would guess that's not the case. If we're honest, if we went around the room, that's probably not the case. But if you were here last week, we talked about the absolute, how vitally important it is that we spend time in God's word. So that's how we know him. That's how we grow in the relationship with him. That's how we see God. We abide in his word. We spend time in his word. And maybe you left last week going, man, I kind of stink as a Christian. I'm not really reading the Bible the way I should. And maybe you went home this week and I hope you did. And you spent a whole lot of time in the word. And I'm going to get up early this week. I'm going to read my Bible or I'm going to stay up late or I'm going to make time during the day and I'm going to read my Bible. and I'm going to do that. And you started to do that. And it will, it will reap benefits in your life if you do, because you're dwelling in God's word and you're spending time with him. But here's the tricky part. Then all of a sudden you start to pat yourself on the back. I'm a pretty good Christian. I read all of John this week or whatever it is, right? And you start to go back to works, 
Right? I feel better because I did this. We do the same thing. It just looks differently. Right? So we may not have the same exact struggle of what they do, but we certainly have the same heart issue. And when we function that way, when we fall into that type of thinking, we're not being skilled in the word of righteousness. You are made righteous before God because of Christ and nothing else. It's by what Jesus has done for you. And so when we start to make it all these other things and we start to add those on, we're not trusting that God's gracious. We're thinking, I need to add some things to that so that he loves me more. And we start to slip into that slippery slope. God was really pleased with me because I spent a lot of time in the Word this week. Right? Does God love you more on your good days versus your bad days? Of course not. But we slip into that type of thinking. It'd be kind of like, I'll give you an example. My son Asher and I will go out and run together sometimes. Asher loves soccer. He's obsessed with it. It's his favorite thing. He's all about it. And so sometimes he'll go, Dad, can we go running? And I'll go, okay. He knows it will help him playing. He knows it will help build his wind up. Sometimes we go and run a giant hill in my neighborhood. And I go and I do that because I know it will help his heart. It will help make his legs stronger. He's willing to do it. And so I will partake in that vile and evil activity for love of my son. Right? We'll run the hill together. And I want you to imagine that Asher and I run the hill and we get to the top of the hill and he turns to me and says, Dad, I love doing this with you. I know it makes you love me a lot more. Whoa, whoa. We don't ever have to run the hill again together. Right? You're not earning anything with me by us running together. But yet that's the way we treat God. If I do this, now he really loves me. Now things are better. Now I'm more assured of his love in my life. And when we function that way, it's a roller coaster of up and down. The good days, we got, ah, I got my assurance. The bad days, we go, oh, I don't know. And so I say all that to just point you to this picture that when we talk about what keeps us from assurance, when we buy into this lie that I earn God's love by my performance, we all wrestle with this. Every day in all different ways. And so do not fall into that trap. I say this frequently. I say it to myself all the time. So if you're tired of me hearing, hearing me say it, I have to hear it. So just bear with me. When you are in Christ, God loves you as much as he's ever going to love you in that moment for eternity. I can't earn any more of his love. But I so quickly want to make it all these other things. And so the first thing that robs us is when we think we can do it when it's tied to our works and my performance. But then the second way I want us to think about is we believe or we struggle with assurance because we believe we can lose our salvation. Maybe you personally don't have that struggle, but I've met a whole lot of people that do. Can I lose my salvation? I seem to have hit a rough patch Am I really saved? And what's going on? And how does that work? And they read this passage and they come to verses 4, 5, and 6 and they go, maybe I can. Right? Look at what it says. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I've seen a lot of people get robbed of their assurance falling into this thing that I can lose my salvation. And they wrestle and they struggle with that. And so please hear me. And I think the Bible clearly says this. You cannot lose your salvation if you are in Christ Jesus. And I can say that because of what my Lord and Savior says. So Jesus in John 10 says that some don't believe. He's talking to the crowds and they're divided over who he is. And he says, some don't believe because you are not of my sheep. But then listen to what he says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given to me and he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Hear what Jesus says? My sheep know me and they follow me and they're with me and no one can take them from me. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 8. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many of the brethren. And then listen. These whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's what theologians will say. It's the unbreakable chain of Romans 8. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And there's no one that can stop that. And so just what Jesus says in John 10... Paul says in Romans 8, or Paul will say it again in Philippians 1, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so just hear God's word. There's about 20 more verses just like that. And so you go, well, how do we take what it says here? It's a hard passage when you start to read it. What is he talking about? And I think if you look closely at the language that's used here, the picture that emerges is not of someone who's a regenerate believer. It's someone that's been around the things of God, that's heard the gospel proclaimed, has even said, yeah, there's some good things in that. You get your sins forgiven, you get out of hell free, that sounds like a good deal to me. But they haven't actually... Uh, become indwelt by the Spirit, fully alive in Christ. You know, he uses the language here of someone who's tasted the goodness of the Word, who's tasted the heavenly gift, who's been enlightened. Right? It's, it's all the pictures that are there. It's someone who sees that it's good, who's interested in it, but they're always kind of on the outside. Not fully embracing the truth of who Christ is and what He's done. Jesus uses an imagery over and over of something very different. He'll talk about uh, coming to him and feeding on him and being his and him indwelling you and all these things that are there. It's not like, hey, come and taste and then that's it. 
And so I think the picture here is someone who's been around it, who's seen that it's good, but not ever really uh, followed, put their complete trust in Christ. That's kind of what Jesus talks about in Mark 4. The seed that gets spread. And some falls on rocky ground and it jumps up real quick, but then it wilts. It's like, yeah, that sounds good, but then quickly goes off. I think that's the picture he's talking about. It's the same thing that John would say in 1 John chapter 2. For they went out from us, but they were never really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. So he's saying there's a picture there that those that went out, they, they were never actually part of the family of God. They were never fully trusting in Jesus. And so part of that, you can say, well, yeah, that makes sense. We still have questions. What about here when he says uh, it's impossible in the case that those of them have been enlightened that have tasted and all those things to be restored to repentance? You know, wait a second. I know people like that. I know people that fall into that category. Are you telling me it's impossible that for them to come back? And I would say to you what Jesus says when he gets posed with the same question. In Luke 18, he, he will say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. And everybody goes, <gasps> They thought being rich meant God's favor was on you. He said, how can he say that? Right? He basically just said it's impossible for them to come to faith. For the camel to go through an eye of an eye. How in the world is that? Right? And so they say that. They say, well, who can be saved, Lord? How does that work? And what does Jesus say? What is impossible with man is possible with God. It's a miracle. Putting your faith, a radical, complete trust in God is a miracle that only God can do. And so I just say to you, whoever you know in your life that maybe fits that category a little bit. God can reach anyone. You don't give up hope on the people that are around you. That's not for you to decide. And God can miraculously bring anyone to faith. I've seen it happen a lot. The people that you think that guy will never come and then all of a sudden there he is. And so don't ever lose heart in the midst of that. And so the second way I would say that we lose our assurance or it's rattled or it's shaken is falling into believing that we can lose our salvation. Or making it about works. And so how do we move into a fullness of the assurance that's available in Christ? Look at the end of what he says here in chapter 6. Pick up in verse 7. For the land that is drunk the rain often falls on it. And produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end it is to be burned up. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and the serving of saints, and you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to the full assurance of hope until the end so that they may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
And so listen to what he's saying. Look at what he's saying there. How do we persevere? How are we sure in our assurance? And what does that look like? How do we finish that? And I want to start at the end of that, uh, those verses there. Right? What does he say right at the end? We desire that each one of you would show the same earnestness to the full assurance of hope until the end. Right? We want you all to persevere. You want we all to have this full assurance. We want you to make it to the end. And then what does he say? So that you may not be sluggish, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's the same thing he says over and over and over and over and over again in chapter 11. It's by faith that you reach the end. By faith, Moses, by faith, Noah, by faith, Samson, over and over and over again. And he's saying the same thing here. He says, your life will bear out the good works that God has for you when you're acting in faith. You continue to fix your eyes on him and he will remake your heart and remake your life and your life will begin to bear that out. There will be fruit in your life when you're clinging to Jesus in faith. But it's not that fruit that saves you. That's just evidence that you're his. And if you switch it, then your assurance is going to be all over the place. And so simply put, when we start to struggle, I had a bad week, or I'm not sure about this, or I'm not sure about that, or what if I did that, and all those things, what's the answer? How are you saved? By faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. Why do you have faith? Ephesians 2, your faith is a gift from Jesus. You see where I'm going? The answer to all those? The faith is Jesus. The ability to believe is Jesus. The reason you persevere is Jesus. And so when you start to make it about all these other things, it just messes it up. Oh, well, do I have enough works? If you turn to look to see if I have enough works, you're no longer looking at Jesus. It's clinging to Him in faith. Right? That's what He says. They made it through because they're just continuing in faith and perseverance and patience. They're just continuing to what it will say later in Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It will take care of the, the rest of those things. But you keep looking to Him. You keep throwing yourself on Him. And so you can read this and you can read 7 and 8 and it says, The land that has drunk the rain that often falls and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is being cultivated receive a blessing from God. Right? Evidence in your life that you're trusting Him, that you're following Him, that you're seeking Him. And you start to go, well, there's my assurance, my works. I don't know how you start to take your eyes off of Jesus and make it about this. And so you keep looking to Him and you keep trusting Him and you keep clinging to Him in all things. And when you do, that's what changes you. That's what remakes you. Fixing your eyes on Him and Him doing this work in you. And so wherever you are, whatever you're struggling with, the answer is you look to Christ. You be skilled in the word of righteousness. You go back over that every day. I'm saved by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. God is gracious to me. He loves me because of what Jesus has done. God's righteousness has been given to me in Christ. And then you live out of the fullness of who you are in Jesus. 
And so just real practically, and we'll end here, just everyday struggles and how you apply to that. Maybe you overslept this week and you didn't read your Bible and you didn't have time. And then you lost your temper with your spouse or your kids or whoever. And then you go from that and you're late to work and you're ugly to your coworkers. And then you get on the elevator and someone sees your Bible that you didn't read under your arm and they say, well, what's the deal with that? And you totally wimp out and you don't want to tell them. I don't have time for this. Oh, it's just a book I'm reading. And you get off the elevator and you go home and you go, man, I blew it every single opportunity today. And your, your assurance is shaken. Look at me, I am a mess. So what's the truth? What's being skilled in the word of righteousness? You are loved completely and fully because of what Christ has done for you, not your performance. We're not believing that God's gracious. We're seeking to believe that I'm saved by what I do versus what Christ has done. And you come back to the heart of the gospel and you repent and you seek to honor him the best you can out of the newness of your heart and your life the next day. But knowing that's not what saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. You fix your eyes on him. It's the same thing when we're anxious about our children. And I'm trying to control these things and I want to get everything right and all this stuff. I'm not believing that God is sovereignly in control. I'm not looking to him and trusting him in those things. And I'm trying to take back the reins. And so I stop and I give it to him. Fix your eyes on Jesus and you go in faith. And so often it's so hard. And we don't know exactly how to do it. But your job is to cling to your Savior in faith. That's what we do. That's what it means to be saved, to be a Christian, to be following Jesus. Is it's all him and I'm just going to hold on to him. And he begins to do this work and to change you and to do these things. But that's his work. And you just continue to follow him. And so you keep looking to him over and over and over and over again. And then when he leads and guides you, you're obedient and you follow him. And you begin to see those things in your life. And that's just evidence that you're trusting him. And in that, in Christ, that's where the fullness of assurance comes. We just sang it this morning. I sat there and thought, man, we could just summarize this whole thing in uh, Cornerstone. Right? When he shall come with the trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. To dressed in his righteousness and what he's done. Let's pray. God, we... Thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel that we are saved by what you do for us, that our lives are changed when we come into contact uh, of this miraculous faith and we put our trust in you and you begin to do these different things around us and in us and through us. And for that, we thank you. I pray that each one of us this week would look fully to you in all things, following your spirit's leading that you would see fit to use us in all these different ways to bring glory to you and that our works that we would do would just be evidence of the miraculous faith and the gift of your grace that you've given us in our life. We thank you that we can rest on the assurance of your promises and who you are and how that holds together in Jesus. And it is his name that we pray. Amen.